It's good to see each of you tonight. Uh, it's a special evening. It's going to be a special weekend. And I have the privilege of introducing our, our speaker, uh, Dr. Sibby Tonstadt. Uh, it's pronounced Sigva. I've been calling him Sigve and Sigvi and a number of things, but I've got the correct pronunciation now. But we're happy to have him here. Some of you uh, attended a Revelation class that we had a couple years ago, and we focused on his commentary on Revelation, found it extremely helpful and insightful, and thought it would be a, a great thing to have a bit of a lecture series and bring him in for a weekend uh, to talk about uh, themes and thoughts from the book of Revelation, since he is quite the expert on Revelation. Uh, he not only is a um, good presenter, but he's also an author, and although uh, I'm not going to be promoting books to sell tonight, I should mention that he's written two books on Revelation. One's a commentary. Is the other one also a commentary? Or... Oh, the other one's his dissertation. Uh, also a commentary on the book of Romans, and uh, one that I've heard of but haven't seen until tonight, God of Sense and Traditions of Nonsense. Um, he's written on the. He's written a, a very good book on the Sabbath and others as well. Um, Dr. Sigve has a uh, an MD degree and specialized in internal medicine, I believe, and is a professor of medicine at uh, Loma Linda University. Uh, he also has a master's degree in um, systematic theology, uh, biblical studies, and uh, has a, a PhD. Uh, in New Testament uh, interpretations and biblical interpretations uh, from St. Andrews University in Scotland. Uh, so he's also a professor of religion at Loma Linda University as well. Uh, it's a privilege to have him come and speak to us. And I, I feel like in some respects it's a paradox because his wife Serena is with him. And Serena is also an MD with a specialty in preventive me medicine and also a PhD in lipids. So we have a couple very, uh, very competent and bright people with us. But I must say, the thing that has impressed me the most is uh, how warm, friendly, gracious, unassuming, unpretentious they are. They're just really nice human beings. Sigby, please come up and, and present for us. I failed to mention that before he comes up, we do have a song. It's going to be sung by Holly Kongorski. It is right out of the book of Revelation. Hopefully it will set the stage for what you want to say to us tonight. Good evening. Happy Sabbath. <laughs> Happy Sabbath. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it is a happy Sabbath. Um, I don't know if you guys um, ever do this, but I sometimes will find I'm trying to um, decide something, and I find my mind starting to wander. And then I start imagining all kinds of things, and at the end of the time that I've wasted, I wonder what good it did me. And so I've actually been thinking about trying to make a a concerted effort to use my imagination to good to good things, right? And so I'm going to read a verse in Revelation 5. Um, and I just would like you to close your eyes and try to use your imagination. And uh, just try to imagine this, because this is just pretty big to me. 
Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. And all of them were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, honor, wisdom, strength, and glory and blessings. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard all of them saying, <laughs> Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So try to imagine that as I sing this song. And if you know this song, feel free to join me. I would love that. God Almighty. 
With all creation I sing praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. Thank you very much for that very lovely song and very <coughs> appropriate for our, for our theme this uh, weekend. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for your welcome. And to Mike, we are feel uh, very much at home. Thank you for inviting us here. And I'm very happy to be here and very honored to be here and also to uh, get to share with you in such a, such a lovely setting. <coughs> So, we are going to look at four glimpses inside Revelation's open door. And those, <clears throat> the terms have been chosen uh, carefully. There is an open door and uh, something to be seen uh, beyond it. So, my illustrations <clears throat> that I will use tonight and, and tomorrow, uh, many of them you may not have seen before. There was a golden age of illustrations of Revelation about seven, eight hundred years ago in the 
Anglo-French world, where they uh, uh, were uh, uh, single volumes of the Book of Revelation were published in very elaborate ways with amazing illustrations. And I have been a Seventh-day Adventist for many years. I have attended many Revelation meetings, and I cannot believe that we never used those illustrations, that they have sort of passed us by, that we never knew about them. Uh, some of these <coughs> collections are now in the prized possession of Oxford University, Cambridge University, uh, some uh, the main uh, museum in uh, Paris. And I have uh, collected some of these, and I will show you some, and I will say that I think these uh, illustrations actually interpret the text amazingly well. So that will be part of it. So let's uh, <coughs> magnify this one. This is a French. Uh, they are all Anglo-French. But this one is the, from the Cambry uh, Apocalypse. Uh, and it is seven to 800 years old. So what do you see here? You see... Uh, let's see if I can get this to, let's see, that one, yeah. <coughs> so here we see uh, uh, John here standing and looking at a scene inside heaven's open door. And <coughs> so here he is, and, and, and this is from the first, um, or the, this is from the seven seals. This is in the opening to the seven seals sequence. And you will notice that there is a kind of, uh, uh, this is one room here. They are sequestered inside this room, and he is standing outside the room, and he is looking through a window. That is where he is positioned all through the book. And you and I, where are we? We are standing behind him. We are, as it were, looking over his shoulder to see the same scenes that he is describing for us. That's the way we have to envision this. So here we are the same. This is still the Cambrai Apocalypse. What is the scene here? Seven trumpets. You can see that here we have seven trumpets. Can you see that? And where is uh, our... Uh, author, here he is, standing there and looking through that window again, because the trumpet sequence is also a sequence that plays out in the setting of the heavenly council in that unseen world. And let's see another one. Here, this is uh, <coughs> the, what is this one? This is the seven bowls. The first of the seven bowl, uh, first two of the seven bowls, and where do we have John? Well, there he is. He's still there. So we have gone seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, all of them playing out in the setting of the heavenly council, and you and I looking at these scenes through that window. What does that mean? What's the consequence of, of, of this to, to make, to sequester it like this? If I may put it in different terms, who is the primary audience in Revelation and who is the secondary audience? 
to which of those two audiences do we be belong? Primary audience, secondary audience. We are the secondary audience. The primary audience is that audience inside the room, inside in the heavenly council. Some people will say the sanctuary, but I think the term the heavenly council is actually, uh, actually more appropriate. They are the primary audience. And you and I, with John, we are looking in through that window to see what is going on in there. What happens inside there is important for those who are inside and not just something that they do to entertain us, you know, to stay their performance for our benefit. So here I edited down my images here. Here, looking at the seven seals, looking at the seven trumpets, looking at the seven bowls, glimpses inside Revelation's open door. That's the imagery and the way we have uh, laid out this theme. <clears throat> so, just a quick word about my own, what you might call glimpses, inside Revelation's open door for me. I did go to the <coughs> University of St. Andrews now 20-plus uh, years ago, quite late in my uh, professional life, and I did write a, common, a, a dissertation on the book of Revelation there with excellent mentors. Uh, and my book there has the title, Saving God's Reputation. Because that's what I think the book of Revelation is up to. God has a reputational problem, a perception problem at least. And someone needs to do something to help him. And the figure that appears in Revelation, inside Revelation's open door, saves God's reputation. That's the short version of that. And then after I had, when I came to St. Andrews to do my, my work, I had already a pretty good idea what I wanted to do. And my professors did not think I was up to something really good. They thought... Why would you want to do it so hard? And, and why, would I, why would I go for the cosmic perspective rather than the Roman perspective that is in vogue in critical scholarship? So I <clears throat> was sleepless in St. Andrews thinking about this. You don't want to write a dissertation or do a project and your advisors don't believe in it. You know, that's pretty... Uh, so for, for, for several weeks, I, I had you know, a hard time. I didn't know what, exactly how to overcome that. But a couple of things happened, and I did overcome that hurdle. I did win my professor's uh, belief in my project. And when I had finished and turned it in and defended my thesis, uh, <coughs> my professor, Bruce Longenecker, <coughs> one of them, he told me he will never read Revelation the same way again. He told me. And then he moved to America, to uh, Baylor University. He's now a professor at Baylor. And the professors at Baylor, they are the editors of a commentary series on the New Testament called the Paideia New Testament Commentary Series. 
And my mentor, Bruce Longenecker, said, I want you to write the Revelation volume in that series. Because, and this I'm quoting, I'm not trying to say anything flattering to me. I just share it, what he said. We want, the world wants, needs to have a commentary on Revelation written by Sigvard Honstad <laughs> with that perspective. And so he was able to persuade Baker, Baker Academic, Baker Publishing House, which is a major uh, <coughs> mainstream Christian uh, publisher in America for uh, lay people and academics, and they uh, uh, let me do it. <coughs> so there is the <coughs> there is the uh, the other book, my commentary on uh, Revelation. And when uh, this book was out, <coughs> Bruce Longenecker came to Loma Linda. We had a book event there, and then he told me, "Now I can die in peace." <coughs> <laughs> because we have, we have done it, you know. <laughs> so just this by introduction, I have enjoyed uh, doing this very much. And I do think that for the problem that God has a reputation problem, that there is a discrepancy in people's perception, at least, between what is happening in the world and what one might have expected God to do about it. For that problem, there is no better book uh, than the book of Revelation. <clears throat> there is another book almost as good, maybe as good. It's the book of Job. <clears throat> and, but <clears throat> we don't need to talk about that now. So I will now be reading some texts and running, doing a kind of uh, running commentary uh, for this evening, we are doing more an introductory uh, perspective, talking mostly about how to read the book of Revelation. I will share three main methodological commitments, and uh, I think they will commend themselves when we have done that. <clears throat> Verse 3 in chapter 1, how fortunate is the one who reads aloud, and those who hear the words of the prophecy. And how fortunate are those who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Uh, and uh, Mark helped me, uh, or he changed the title I had suggested for this evening, uh, so that uh, I thought you had a better title. The more you read it, the better it, uh, it gets. So I was very happy for uh, for that uh, uh, improvement. <clears throat> so, we are reading, and Revelation pr uh, promises a blessing to those who read the book. In those days, people couldn't read silently. In the ancient world, all reading was reading out loud. So, when it says, blessed are those who read, it means reading out loud. Now, just to digress a little, it worries me. It worries me quite a lot, actually, that we are reading less in, my, in our time, in our generation. The bookstore, the Adventist bookstore in Loma Linda, California, is out of business. They simply did not, could not sell enough books, and there you are in the mecca of Adventism, and, and, and the bookstore goes out of business. 
So I will say not only that what this text says, blessed are those who read this book, the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who read. That maybe revelation could also be a kind of incentive, a kind of remedial incentive for the reading deficit that we have in our world today. We have more media, we have lots of television, and many, uh, much religion mediated through television, and too little mediated through reading, because reading is a more deeper way of engaging with material. That's what I'm suggesting. So blessed is he, uh, uh, he or she who reads. <coughs> and now to my principles for how to read the book of Revelation. So the first methodological commitment for someone who wants to get into the book of Revelation is what? To read it? Sure. No. To re-read it. To re-read it. To become a re-reader. And yes, I'm quoting from Vladimir Nabokov here. I got this idea from him. He was a literary critic, and he was also the author of a novel that is very famous. And some people think we should not read it because it, there is a, <coughs> some... Uh, uh, questions of morality, but his <coughs> work as a literary critic in, in, uh, and a professor of, of that subject in the U.S. is very, very perceptive. Curiously enough, one cannot read a book. One can only reread it. That is to say, if you have only read it, that wasn't much. Read a book and then you, have, you reread it. A good reader, a major reader, an active and creative reader is a re-reader. Now, maybe there are books that can be read, and that was it. But the book of Revelation is hardly that kind of book. The book of Revelation uh, is <coughs> uh, asking for re-readers. So <coughs> I, have, I just want to sort of hit that, uh, that point a little here. So I thought if you do a Revelation uh, series here, you might just post outside on the street uh, that you're doing this series, but it is for re-readers only. <laughs> How would that work? You know, you're welcome, but, you know, on certain terms. So here, <coughs> re-readers are welcome. Or... Uh, uh, and then uh, to give some reasons for this. So if we do a little walkthrough of uh, the book of Revelation, we have first here uh, the seven letters, <coughs> first three chapters, seven seals, the next three, four chapters, seven trumpets here, and we have uh, the cosmic conflict theme in the middle. It doesn't quite fit here. It doesn't. Some people have tried to make that into a seven septet two. It hasn't quite succeeded. And then the seven bowl sequence actually runs from chapter 15 till the end of the book, pretty much. If you think of this linearly, that you go from the seven letters to the seven seals to the seven trumpets into the cosmic conflict story, 
and linearly now to the seven bowls, like you would in a normal book, that isn't how revelation works. It doesn't work linearly because revelation tells you something early on that it only explains later. So you needed that information that comes later in order to understand something that happened much earlier. And the only person who can truly get the benefit of, you know, get to master that is the rereader. So here is another way of organizing it. So here I have put the cosmic conflict in the center. And then the letters are here. But the cosmic conflict is still the center, like the hub of the wheel, from which the storyline, where the storyline is anchored. Here the seven seals, seven trumpets. Here the three angels' messages, part of the cosmic conflict story. And here the seven balls. <coughs> I'll try to explain this in a little different way here too. Here I put <coughs> Revelation 12 or the cosmic conflict story there at the center here. And then you will agree with me that when you read from chapter 12 toward the end of the book, it's pretty logical. There is a kind of linearity to the narrative from chapter 12 onwards. So here, that makes sense, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 19, 20. In chapter 12, the cosmic antagonist is introduced. He's the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. And in chapter 20, he is bound. And he bound the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and so on. And so this portion here, you could maybe do that without being a rereader. But now I'm going to change it and say that the influence of chapter 4 and chapter, on chapter 5 to 7 and on chapter 8 to 9, the influence of chapter 12 is felt on those chapters just as much as on the lat latter part of the book. And that you couldn't do unless you are a rereader. And most readers, most even scholarly interpreters of Revelation have not done that sort of rereader uh, mastery that is necessary to get that right. I say that also for Seventh-day Adventist interpretations. They do pretty well here. This is sort of home turf. But the sense or the influence of these, of the middle of Revelation on what precedes it has been poorly recognized, poorly acknowledged. Well, there are some exceptions. <clears throat> Here is Adela Yarbrough-Collins. She is a professor of New Testament at Yale University. She and her husband, they are a power couple at Yale. He is an Old Testament uh, scholar and a, an expert on apocalyptic uh, literature, John Collins. 
And Adele Arbor Collins, she is a New Testament expert who started out working on uh, Revelation and lately has also done a major, major commentary on the Gospel of Mark. She has just uh, retired. <coughs> this she wrote in a book that was published in 1979. The first four verses of chapter 5, that's early in Revelation, First four verses of chapter 5 imply that the heavenly council is faced with a serious problem. I saw a scroll. Here you have, you have it here. Uh, the church has uh, prepared for our weekend here and made a scroll seven, with seven seals. So there is a sealed scroll in chapter 5 in the first four verses. And there is no one who can open it. There is a serious problem there. Uh, she is right about that. <clears throat> and then she says this. In the context of the apocalypse as a whole, it is clear that the problem facing the heavenly council is the rebellion of Satan, which is paralleled by rebellion on earth. Chapter 5 presupposes the old story of Satan's rebellion against God, which leads to the fall of creation. So in chapter 5, you see something that is explained. You, you see a problem in chapter 5, the origin of which is described in chapter 12. So that, to put those two together... That you have to be a rereader to do. Or you will flounder in chapter 5. Next time you read chapter 5, <laughs> you will know. Easy going. At least when you read it for the tenth time, then you see it very clearly. <clears throat> so here is the heavenly council, and here the upstream influence of chapter 5 on what happens in chapters 4. Uh, or the, uh, what happens in chapter 12, on the influence on that uh, upstream in the story. <clears throat> so just let me uh, rub this in. Access denied versus access granted. It's not me. It's not like I'm trying to make difficulties for the readers. It is in the nature of the book that you have to, come to, have to become a rereader. It is in the character of the book. Here is another illustration. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> <coughs> All right. <coughs> number two, principle number two. Number one, rereaders are welcome. Well, Revelation wants re-readers. And number two, pay at attention to the Old Testament. This is Richard Bauckham. Richard Bauckham is a prolific New Testament scholar in the UK. And he was one of my supervisors for my project, my thesis in, uh, at St. Andrews. Uh, and uh, I know him, and I have been his host at Loma Linda. And, uh, and uh, some he writes to me once in a while Christmas letters, and I uh, consider him a friend. And he is an extremely careful scholar. He is, uh, in my view, the most respectable 
and in many people's eyes, the most respected New Testament scholar in the, in the UK, and also very, very well known in America. So here he, <coughs> he says the following, Revelation's use of the Old Testament scriptures is an essential key to its understanding. The pattern of almost continuous allusion to the Old Testament throughout the book is a pattern of disciplined and deliberate allusion to specific Old Testament texts. So here is John writing Revelation, and why is that sounds like something in the Old Testament? That sounds like something in the Old Testament. Is it haphazard? It isn't. It is intentional. It is done with purpose. It is done with respect for the Old Testament passage that is put to use in the context of Revelation. That's what he is uh, saying here. And so here is the key aspect. So we want to get the meaning of this. Well, it sounds like there is some Old Testament thing going on here. That's the key. Let's look at it. And I will say for my own work on New Testament uh, books, I've written a commentary on Romans, as was mentioned, and on Revelation, that the most meaningful part of of those projects is to explore in the Old Testament books on their own terms. See what they say, what the meaning is in the context of that book itself. And then look at it in the context of the New Testament book where these passages are used. (coughs) So here, again, and you see that there is uh, a Bible, an Old Testament uh, there. So here is again from Richard Baucom. Illusions are meant to recall the Old Testament context, which thereby becomes part of the meaning of the apocalypse, the meaning the apocalypse conveys, and to build up sometimes by a network of allusions to the same Old Testament passage in various parts of the apocalypse, an interpretation of whole passages of Old Testament prophecy. This is to assume an intimate relationship between the Old and the New Testament, or between the Old Testament and Revelation. And it is also to put before us John, not only as a seer, but as a reader, as a thinker. So these things do not happen on autopilot. You know, he has been a good student, John, of the Old Testament before he gets uh, the Revelation. So now, for just to comment on Revelation scholarship in general and Revelation scholarship in Adventist context uh, too. So in times past, there was very little... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, in times past, there was very little attention to the Old Testament voices in Revelation. The most influential Revelation reader or scholar or writer in the Adventist church was a man by the name of Uriah Smith, who wrote on this book uh, in the mid middle of the 19th century. And for a hundred years or so, 
Uriah Smith was the main interpreter of the book of Revelation for Seventh-day Adventists. He was the gold standard. In some ways, a bit undeserved, because if you read Uriah Smith's commentary on Revelation, he does not pay much attention to the Old Testament. The most crucial passages, Old Testament passages that are made to echo in Revelation, they pass Uriah Smith by like he is tone deaf. He reads the newspaper. He reads history books. He does not allow the explanatory power of the Old Testament to play out in the context of Revelation. Now, some of my friends in <coughs> nowadays in Adventist community have have seen that and have sought to remedy it, I think, in some ways, quite a good step in the right direction, that now we have to pay attention to the Old Testament passages. That is a big difference, and it changes some of our emphases somewhat. Don't be nervous. It's the right thing to do. It's only the right thing to do. It is overdue in some ways, that we do it. So let me just feature some Old Testament uh, uh, perspectives in Revelation, just, and then you can go and find them. Um, so here, John, John is on Patmos. He has been a reader before he comes there. And this is a list of passages from Isaiah snippets of which you can hear in the book of Revelation if you just put your ear to the ground. And most people in our community will say that the most important Old Testament book from the point of view of Revelation is the book of Daniel. I wonder about that. Some things might just, some books might just win that competition more than Daniel. So here is Daniel. So here are passages from the book of Daniel that echo in Revelation. I should have given you the verses in Revelation too, but I'm just, it would be so crowded. My slide would be too crowded. So I just get, did it this way. So here is Ezekiel. Wow. Big time Ezekiel. He is especially... Uh, a prominent toward the end of Revelation, chapter 19, chapter 20, and the tree of life in, uh, with the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. It's from Ezekiel, 12 verses from chapter 47 in Ezekiel. It's amazing. <clears throat> Here is Genesis. <laughs> How can you read Revelation and not uh, read Genesis? The ancient serpent, a woman who is pregnant and crying out in childbirth, that, you know, it's very major stuff. And Zechariah, Zechariah also, and other voices too. But this is the reality. This is what we have in this book. <clears throat> Here is one more statement from uh, uh, Richard Bauckham. John was writing the climax of prophetic revelation, which gathered up the prophetic meaning of the Old Testament scriptures and explained how they would be fulfilled in our time, how this had come to fruition in our time. So, <clears throat> so just to put this in a contrastive perspective here, 
So when I teach Revelation, I do not say that you need to do this book and buy into this school of interpretation or that school of interpretation or that school. We need to leave that open. John, when he wrote Revelation, did not think that he belonged to a certain school of interpretation. You can be quite sure about that. So, but here they are, the schools. There is a preterist school, and he is looking backward. He is looking at history that has already happened. There is the futurist school of interpretation or prophecy. That's the school that has won the biggest market share in America today. Most American Christians who take any interest in the book of Revelation, by and large, are futurists. And that type of interest is much stronger in the United States than in any other country I can think of. So that's just one comment. And then you have historicism. And you can see that the historicist, he looks to the past and he looks to the future and he has a more comprehensive vision. And historicism has been seen as the kind of place to be in, for Adventist uh, uh, prophetic readings. And not saying that that, is not, that that has no merit, but <clears throat> it may not be as good as we have thought. So here <clears throat> I'm going to look at the reading habits of these schools of interpretation. Here you have the three schools, main schools of interpretation. What do they read? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> the preterist reads history in the Roman Empire at the time of Nero the first century Roman history. When the preterist reads Revelation 13, beast from the sea, beast from the earth, he thinks he is reading the preterist in the main. They think they are reading about the emperor Nero, that he died by suicide, he had a mortal wound, and a rumor was started in the Roman Empire afterwards that he would revive again. So the person who has the beast that has the wound in Revelation 13, to most academic scholars, is the Emperor Nero. And that's the curriculum you need to know to master Revelation uh, from the preterist point of view. Now, the, <coughs> the futurists, <laughs> they are more sanguine. <laughs> They just read today's newspaper. <laughs> and there are no controls on those readings. They can change anything that is very, very sort of uh, uh, open-ended, you might say. And the historicists, they read also. They also, you have to master a huge curriculum if you want to be a good historicist because you have to read all of history and the consequence of that kind of commitment and that kind of curricular commitment. Let me <coughs> back off and say, if you just buy in a very little, very tiny bit into what I am sharing, you can stand here and share it yourself as well as I can. But if you totally get sold on the historicist commitment. You can't, because it will be for the specialist. It will be revelation for the few. 
So I have told my friend and colleague uh, and, uh, at Loma Linda, John Pauline, who is <coughs> more famous in Adventism for uh, reading Revelation than I am, but I have told him that it's good that the Adventist church has you because you understand the book of Revelation for us. The rest of us don't understand it, and we couldn't explain it if we tried. But we are sure that you will understand it for us. We have, you know, vicarious understanding through those, Stefanovic, Jean Pauline, a few others. Not me, because I do not want to be <coughs> understanding revelation for anyone. I think it is all possible for us to understand it, but that means that one has to <coughs> deconstruct that commitment somewhat. So we are doing that, and we, we uh, uh, see how that looks. John on Patmos, before he got there, while he was there, he was a reader. And he was a seer. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I saw and I heard. So he is that part of him, seer and reader, we have from the, big, uh, from the start. And then, <clears throat> what is he reading? What's the reading curriculum him, for him? It is the Old Testament. You could not write that way. It is as though he is thinking with his pen, Austin Ferrer, Ferrer says. And he is thinking in Old Testament language that is readily available to him. Now he will become a writer, and he will write with allusions to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. But I don't think he writes the way I have put my illustration here. It was the best I could do. I don't think he, he does it like that, you know. And, you know, that he has to look it up like I have to do. You know, look up all my references and see if I find something. He, he has easy recall. He knows it that well. You know, that, that's, that's the point. But <clears throat> to conclude here, <clears throat> seeing John as reader, thinker, seer, and writer, we will say that for our method too, we are reading Revelation, and we have said, pay an attention to the Old Testament. There is a reading requirement. There is a curriculum. The reader of Revelation becomes a student of what John read. Not all history. Maybe, I, I am all for reading history, by the way. I think one should read history for a number of reasons. But not necessarily because the key to the book of Revelation is there. The key to the book of Revelation for the theological message in the book of Revelation is more in the Old Testament than it is in any history book you can think of. Number three, <clears throat> on my last point, <clears throat> God is not the only one who is at work in this world. I have this quotation from a, a German <clears throat> scholar. I think he was Roman Catholic. doesn't matter. <clears throat> he said something that is very appropriate. God is not the only one who is at work in this world as the apocalypse so abundantly makes clear. Well, who else is at work? Well, there is human reality, and there is 
a non-human reality. And the book of Revelation has names for it. It is a book about the theme of cosmic conflict. When we talk in the Adventist community about the great controversy, that is not completely contrived. I don't use that term uh, in, when I talk in a non-Adventist context, certainly. And I would also wish us to get that theme worked out more on the basis of the Bible and not some other writing as <coughs> worthwhile as those writings might be. <coughs> so here is my illustration. <laughs> what is that? <coughs> it's a terrorist who is blowing up a bomb and then hiding, concealing that there is a an evil reality at work in the world concealed. That is the third commitment. God is not the only one who is at work in this world. <clears throat> and, and here we have the, a scene, an illustration. This is from the, what is called the Trinity Apocalypse. And this is the sixth trumpet, the fifth and sixth trumpet. In the fifth trumpet, there is a star that falls down from heaven to earth. It has the key to the bottomless pit. It opens the bottomless pit. Smoke comes out. The smoke becomes locusts. The locusts become scorpions. The scorpions become horses. The horses, they have heads in the front, and they have heads in the tails. And they have mouths. And with these they inflict harm. These, these are overwrought images depicting what? That God is not the only one who is at work in this world. That there is a demonic reality. An evil reality at work. And Revelation's language serves this up to us. I think especially maybe in the trumpet sequence. Here, I have seen what the Trinity Apocalypse has done. Can you see it? The tails, and that the tails have heads, and the heads, they have tails, and they are like serpents. They are like serpents. It's just like it shouts at us that this is a demonic reality. <clears throat> so... Just to illustrate here, so God and human and non-human reality. <clears throat> what, how does theology do this? <clears throat> Revelation is very preoccupied uh, with the non-human reality, not just human history, but the cosmic perspective. But interpretations of Revelation and Christian theology in general has tended to collapse it to make it all a linear story, not a triangular story. It's God and humans. It's God and humans in, you know, God and salvation, but not having to deal with that other side, the cosmic, cosmic perspective. So <clears throat> just to illustrate here on the first trumpet, the first angel blew his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were hurled to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. 
So if you read 95% of commentaries on the book of Revelation, non-Adventists, they will say that the agent hurling all these calamities to the earth, say it, say it for me, it's God. Divine agency, that's right. First, second, third, fourth, fifth, fifth trumpet, the fifth and sixth trumpet, there is a devil walking there as big as you can be, straight through the door, and nobody notices that it is, uh, you know. what. So if you read recent Adventist interpretations of Revelation, and you ask, who is doing this? They will say exactly what the non-Adventist interpreters say too on that point. And there too, there seems to me a failure to recognize that God is not the only one who is at work in this world. What you do on this point to which side you assign agency determines the theology of the book. That's it. If you think that is God, that this is divine retribution, that these are punitive measures that God institutes on the world, well, that's your theology of the book of Revelation. If you think that it is the other side doing it, that it is a demonic reality, and that the book of Revelation reveals to us the demonic reality that prefers to be hidden, then you have another theology. You have here, as, <coughs> so here is the, the welcome <coughs> apocalypse. This is very old. This is about a thousand years old. And there are only a few uh, leaflets of this, uh, this kind of illustration. But you can see, <coughs> what do you think? I think the welcome artist did very, very well. So who do... This is the first trumpet, and there is, you know, who are these? Who is the, is this divine or demonic agency? This is demonic agency. They understood it, and why we do not understand it to be that today, well, that, I'm sorry, it beats me. <clears throat> so there is a fork in the road here under the third of my principles, or for third of the methodological commitments, and the fork in the road is, is this a book that depicts divine retribution in the seals, in the trumpets, in the bowls? Or is it a book that depicts divine revelation? Sending the bill for the calamities that are depicted in the book to the correct address. That's as big as I see this. And the utility, usefulness of the book of Revelation will depend very much on which uh, <coughs> road we take when we get to that fork. I know I'm very good friends with many people in the Adventist community, but I should be upfront with you and say that some <coughs> people do, are not happy that I am emphasizing revelation and not retribution. And, and uh, I gave a presentation to a large uh, camp meeting once a few years ago and I stress this point, and uh, they took down my presentation. 
I thought that was quite, quite ill-advised. You know, let it be out there. Let's discuss it. Let's see what we come up with when we have thought this through. Uh, <coughs> so, okay. Three commitments. Rereader, Old Testament, and God is not the only one who is at work in this world. You can get pretty far in your study of Revelation with those three commitments. Now one thing that isn't uh, really a number, but it's just a character of the book of Revelation. So how should you do it? Should one listen to it like you now are politely listening to me and I'm presenting and we are just like having a Revelation uh, uh, seminar like in the good old days? Or should we find a way to do it in a participatory way? We do it together. We're going to do some of that tomorrow. I really look forward to it, and I'm so happy that you have been willing to, to do that. Should we do Revelation in the seminar style or some other way that makes us see and feel the book a bit more? Uh, and you can hear what I am uh, <coughs> heading toward here. The seminar format is the most alien format you can imagine for a book like the book of Revelation that is so full of voices and music. So here is the particip participatory <coughs> mode. At least they do something, you know. They react because inside the book of react Revelation you have reactions to what happened. Something is revealed and shown and they react to it. They cheer and they do, you know, various things. So, <clears throat> seminar or symphony, how to preserve the sound and the subtlety of revelation, how to safeguard its poetic, evocative force. There is no book in the New Testament so full of music, soaring, you know, but we never get to hear it. We did get a little sense of it in the song that was performed here that was very... Uh, beautiful, and it was a good illustration of what we might, might do. How to make the book's beauty mediate insight. Aesthetics as a mediator of understanding. <coughs> so here we have the seminar form, and here we have <coughs> participatory form, you know, singing, participating, letting us hear the voices. <coughs> Let's try it out a little, uh, just as we come to conclude our program this evening.
story to break it off. <laughs> Was I imposing something on Revelation that isn't there by this illustration toward the end? It's there. It's there. Again and again and again. Revelation 4, Revelation 5, Revelation 7, Revelation uh, 15, Song of Moses and the Lamb. You know, it goes on and on. But this is not just aesthetics. This is a composition made to mediate intellectual insight, real understanding, doing it in a format that also makes use of beauty, of music, of participatory elements. It's quite amazing. Let's do it one more time. Become a rereader. Pay attention to the Old Testament quotations, allusions, and echoes. Be aware that God is not the only one who is at work in the world. We need to get that one right. And then this one, more in parentheses, it's a book that is begging to be performed more than a book asking to be taught. Thank you for your attention. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow in the usual way. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tonstad. That's good. Y'all going to go home and read it a couple of times tonight, so you'll be ready <laughs> for tomorrow. Okay. Tomorrow we will begin at 9.30 sharp. Uh, we'll, we'll have a... a a song to get us in the mood, and then we'll be right into the material at 9.30. We'll take a short break, and then we'll come back for the worship hour in which we will do some participatory... Um, I, I promised you that the ones that are going to sit on chairs, you wouldn't have to say any solo parts. I'm going to renege on that just a little bit. A few of you will have solo parts, and most of you, all of us, will have unison parts that we will... We will Read responsively together. That will be fun. And you will lead us through that, right? No, you. <laughs> I just got the script. <laughs> we will have some fun with that. It, it will be good. Um, so tomorrow morning, 9.30, okay? And uh, we're going to let you go, but let's pray first. Would you stand with me and we will, we will pray. Thank you, Lord, for what you have shared with us this evening. Uh, good stuff that we can think about as we read and reread and, and uh, let the images of your book play across our minds. We ask that that might happen and that we can come back in the morning refreshed, ready, and eager to participate in what you have for us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have preserved this work for us, uh, this book, this writing, and we are eager to learn as much as we can. Thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.